Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, hey guys, my name's Byron, and I get the privilege each and every week to serve here as a lead pastor. If you are a guest here, I want to say thank you so much for um, coming out, hanging out with us today. Um, Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Titus. That's where we're going to be at as we start this new series over the book of Titus called For the Glory of God and the Good of Others. Um, If you're looking for Titus, it's near the end of your Bible. So as you're flipping there, start at the table of contents and then just kind of work your way forward uh, and you'll find it there towards the end. It's a small book, um, but it's a very impactful book and I am so excited to be walking through this together. So um, let's start it off in prayer and then we will get to work. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for your church. Thank you that you have called us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. That you have called us out of our old life and into a new life with you. Thank you for your son Jesus that makes all of this possible. Lord, I thank you for, um, for your servants uh, throughout all of the ages and centuries who have given their lives to, to love you and to love others in the way that you have called us to do. I thank you for this man named Titus, who without him, we wouldn't be here today. I thank you that you have a plan for all of our lives. Lord, that you give good news to those who are in need, and you save us, and you change us, and you give us something to look forward to. And I praise you for all of this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. So there's something that uh, I am growing increasingly concerned with. That it's a saying in the American church, um, and if you've been around, you know, Christian circles for a while, then you most likely have heard this saying. Um, and, And it's not wrong, per se. Like, I understand what we're trying to communicate, but the more that I hear it, just something about it just doesn't settle well with me. And the saying is like this, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. Have you heard that? Like, I've said it. Like, I've probably advocated for this from the stage, that Jesus is the most important thing in your life. And I understand what we mean when we say this. I, I really do. But I think that if we dig just a little bit deeper into what we're saying, it reveals what I perceive as a growing problem in American Christianity. And here's what it does. Is it advocates for the compartmentalization or the separation of faith from works. That we separate who Jesus is from how we live. That our beliefs need not to be, have any bearing on our behaviors. That God's glory doesn't necessarily reflect the good in our lives. And see, when Jesus came, he didn't come to be a part of your life. He came because he is life. See, see Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He's not a way, he's the way. He's not a truth, he's the truth. He's not a part of our lives. He is life itself. That apart from Jesus, we are dead. We are dead in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses. We are separated from God. That's why Jesus came to live the life you never could, to overcome the death that you deserve and to give you life. See, Jesus is life, and all of our life is to be found in him. See, here's what, here's what I perceive the typical um, churchgoer Christian life looks like. The compartmentalization of faith and works. And I, I made a nice little graphic for you, so hopefully it can illustrate Here's what it looks like. It looks like a pie chart. Okay, so we got Jesus and work. 
We got Jesus and friends, Jesus and school, Jesus and hobbies, Jesus and family. Now, while we may love Jesus, we still make him a part of our lives, and he might get the biggest part, but he's still just a part. And this is the comp- the the. The, the separation of Jesus from our life. So it's Jesus on Sundays, work on Monday. So it might be Jesus on Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday classes, Friday night with the boys. But what Jesus wants to be, rather, is at the center of all of our existence. And so a better way for us to imagine the authentic Christian life is like a hub. And so we play the next graphic, is this, is that Jesus is to be the center of all of our existence. That everything is to be sustained on the person and work of Jesus and the glory of God in our life. And from that position of Jesus at the center, it overflows into our work, that our work would be impacted by our worship, that our friends would be sustained by the glory of Christ in our life, that how we raise our kids, who we date, who we marry, is contingent upon the work of Jesus in our lives. See, we cannot compartmentalize our faith from our works. What we need to do is we need to contextualize or to apply the gospel into every aspect of our existence. That is the message of Titus. That is the authentic Christian life. So as you got your Bibles, we're in Titus chapter 1. We're going to be working our way through verse 1 through 4 today. Let me say this. I love preaching straight through books of the Bible. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's to be able to open it up as the Holy Spirit opens our lives. And then to walk through verse by verse as the Spirit walks through us day by day. I love it. I love it. So thank you for giving me the privilege to be able to do what I love the most, which is to be able to teach the Bible. And so today what we're going to do is I'm going to give you an overview, and then I'm going to roll up my sleeves, and then I'm just going to preach the last four verses, all right? So that's what we're going to do. Um, Let me say this. Titus is what's called a pastoral epistle, okay? So it's written to a pastor, but it's written for us as the church. It's 46 verses, so it's not really long. But there's so much to work from in this book. And so I'm jacked to go through it. So let's, let's read, and then let's just kind of walk through it. All right? So here we go. Titus 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and for the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. By the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Amen. So a little Bible trivia to start off. Okay? Um, Who wrote the book of Mark? Mark, right? Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke, okay? All right, this one's a little trickier. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke wrote Acts. All right, who wrote First and Second Peter? Peter. Okay, who wrote the book of Titus? Paul. Wait, what? What? Okay. See, how do we know Paul wrote the book of Titus? Well, the first word here is Paul. All right, that's a good indicator that Paul is the author of the book of Titus. And Paul's writing this letter to a man named Titus. Now, if we want to understand the context or, or what we're going to be looking at, we need to learn who we're learning from. So it'd be good for us to, to take a look at Paul's story and see how this benefits us in our life. So who's Paul? Right, if you were raised in church, you most likely have heard a lot about 
Paul. If you were raised in the Baptist tradition, then you probably got a lot of Paul. If you come from the Reformed Baptist tradition, you probably heard a lot about Paul. Probably focusing on his work in the church or maybe the book of Romans. If you come from more of a mainline tradition like um, like Catholic or Episcopalian, then you probably didn't get a whole lot of Paul. And if you come from a Pentecostal tradition, maybe charismatic, you probably got Paul, but mainly out of the book of Acts, okay? Maybe you come from, you're not raised in church, you have more of a, a, a postmodern mindset, and so you might have heard a lot about Paul, but most likely not very good things about the man. And so let's really kind of look at Paul's story and what we can learn from it and how we can apply it to our lives. Because if we're going to be studying his words through the book of Titus, it'd be good to understand who we're talking to. So here's, here's Paul. The first time we meet Paul in the New Testament, Paul's not even named Paul. His name then is Saul. And Saul's job in the first church was to persecute, capture, and kill Christians. That was his job. He hated Christians. He was raised very religious, but he rejected Jesus and the church. Maybe some of you can sympathize with that. How many of you guys are raised in church, rejected Jesus, right? So, so we've experienced that. So maybe you're like me. So Paul hated the church. And when we meet him in the book of Acts, the first time, Paul's killing another Christian man named Stephen, one of the first deacons in the very first church. And as the men that Paul's with is murdering Stephen by stoning him, Paul's Paul's not even the one who's throwing the stones. Paul's the one who's holding the coat of the men throwing the stones. So Paul's a bad dude. He's not even the guy committing the execution. He's the one holding the coats while other people do it. And the Bible says he looked on with hearty approval. That's Paul. Paul's a tough guy. But Paul is not as tough as Jesus. Because a few chapters later, Paul meets Jesus and Jesus beats him up. So, So Jesus comes down. That's Yes, Jesus comes down from heaven, knocks Paul off his horse, beats Paul up. And that's how Paul gives his life to Jesus. Right? You know you're elect, which is another word in this text, when Jesus beats you up. Okay? <laughs> Jesus hit this guy so hard, it blinded him. That's how he met Jesus. And so some of you might feel like that. You're like, I, I don't really want to be a Christian, but Jesus beat me up. And, and now I just follow Jesus because what else am I going to do? That's what I would tell you to do. Just follow Jesus. If you're resisting him, if you're fighting him, just be like Paul. Give up and go with it. And it worked out well for Paul. Paul then gave his life to Jesus, went from murdering Christians to raising up new pastors. Paul went from persecuting the church to planting new churches. That is a big change. And so if, Paul can, if God can do it for Paul, he can do it for you as well. And so Paul gives his life to Jesus, starts serving in the church, starts planting churches, raising up godly pastors, traveling all across the ancient world, writing several books of the Bible. And one of the books that he wrote is Titus. So he writes to this young man named Titus. Now, we don't know a lot about Titus, not nearly as much as we know about Paul, but there are some things that we do know about Titus's life. One of those things is that Titus was a Greek Gentile. So that means he was not Jewish. So Paul was was Jewish. Titus, not Jewish. He was Greek. Most likely he was a pagan, worshiped the Greek and Roman gods. And so Um, Titus had never heard of the name of Jesus. He had never been to church. He had never followed any of the Jewish customs or the Jewish laws. He had no um, faith background for him to pull upon when it comes to understanding the gospel. And so Paul goes in to this church and plants a church, and he meets this young man named Titus. 
Titus gives his life to Jesus, starts serving the church, and his life is changed forever. I want to show you something. This is one of the things that I love, love so much about the church, okay? Because this is something you can only get in a local church, is strangers becoming family. Listen, Paul refers to Titus, my true child in common faith. These guys had nothing in common. They were from different races, ethnicities, backgrounds. They had completely different understandings and worldviews, and God made them family. The church is the only place you can get that. When you see people who, who have, are separated by economic status in the city, when you have doctors sitting next to, to kindergartners, when you have Republicans sitting next to Democrats, when you have stay-at-home moms working with high school teachers, and you have grandparents educating and discipling college kids, that's amazing. And the only place you can get that is in a local church. Because God makes us family. It's the only way to change strangers into brothers and sisters. Many of us in this room, one year ago, didn't know each other. Our paths never would have crossed. Now we're worshiping together, serving together, reading our Bibles together, praying together. God has made us a family. And that happens in the local church. He says, true child in common faith. I've had a couple of men who have poured into my life and changed the trajectory of my, my, my life. May it be the same for us. So this is Titus, that God has raised Titus up Paul has given his life to love Titus, to serve Titus. And on several occasions through the New Testament, we see the godly example of Titus' life. We meet him first in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul is um, going up against the religious people of the day, and the, then they have what's called the Judaizers. We'll talk about those guys in a sec. But the Judaizers, they said this, Jesus is not enough for you to be saved. In, in addition to following Jesus, you must follow Jewish customs. You must follow our ceremonial laws, and you must be circumcised. They're called the circumcision party. You got the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, and the circumcision party. Okay, um, I'll let you know. I don't want to be a part of their party. That's just not one I want to go to. Um, and, and so Titus didn't want to be a part of that either. And so as Paul is up against the the Judaizers, he says, "No, you don't have to do anything to be saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone." by the person and work of Jesus, not what we do. And I'll give you an example. His name's Titus. This is my boy Titus. Look at what God's done in Titus' life. Titus is a Greek. Titus never heard the name of Jesus. And Titus has been transformed by the work of Christ. So Titus is the reason we believe what we believe, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Titus changed the game for all of Christianity. The godliness, the character of Titus' life on display in the first church completely changed the history of all of Christianity. We owe a lot to this young man named Titus. In addition to the church in Galatia, we also meet him in the book of Corinthians. You might remember him from our series, Every Good Work, where we walk through 2 Corinthians. Here's what's going on. The, the church then is in total economic devastation. There's extreme poverty, and there's a famine that's just wiping out the church. And there's a church called Corinth that's doing pretty well. So they're wealthy, they're good, and, but they're not generous. They don't give to support the mission of God. And so Paul sends Titus to collect the tithe from this church. So Paul must really trust Titus if he's going to trust him with the stewardship of all of the church in the ancient world. That speaks to his godliness. That speaks to his integrity. That speaks to his, his character. So we owe a lot to this man who followed Paul around while Paul planted new churches. And one of the churches that Paul planted is in a city called Crete. 
Crete is a city off of the coast of Greece. It's actually an island. So when you think of Crete, think of it like Corpus Christi, not Galveston. I'm sure their beaches are prettier. Um, And so, so he plants this church in Crete and leaves Titus to be the pastor. He says, Titus, you've been with me for a while. You got this. I'm ready and you're ready. Go get him. And he leaves Titus, this young pastor, first-time pastor, in this church plant in this city filled with new Christians, people who are young in their faith, and he leaves them in this city to, to lead this church. Now, after a while, there were some problems that came up in the church, okay? And, and so in these problems, with new Christians, with not a lot of deep roots in the gospel, um, another group of people came in known as the Gnostics. And the Gnostics came in, and they began to teach false doctrine within the church. The Gnostics today would be very similar to maybe the emergent movement or, you know, liberal Christians. And here's, here's what they say. The, the resurrection of Jesus is not real. The Bible is not authoritative for our lives. They would teach there's no such thing as sin and the, dupl- the, the, the duplicity of man or that, you know, what we do has no bearing on, on, on what we believe. And so they begin to teach this false doctrine in the church and young Christians, they, they just kind of went astray. And as they're going astray, there's another group that comes in known as the Judaizers. Now, Titus had already met the Judaizers. He's probably like, oh, no, not these guys again. And so he comes up against the Judaizers, and the Judaizers teach all law, no grace. So you have to do this in order to be saved, that your works is what saves you. So you got two groups of people. you got the, the Gnostics who say it doesn't matter what you do, and then you got the Judaizers who say, Oh, it all depends on what you do. Both groups of people have compartmentalized their faith from their works. And what Paul teaches Titus in this book is how to combat the natural proclivities of our lives to separate who we are from what we believe. That's the message of Titus. And so it's very important because look at this. Titus is a young pastor in a church plant filled with new Christians. And all he wants is for their church to grow to grow in maturity, to grow in gospel belief, to grow and make an impact in the city that they live in. If only we could imagine a church that would need to read this book. I'll let you sit on that one for a bit, okay? Do you see why this would be important for us as a young church filled with new Christians who are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so here's Paul. The, the, the church in Crete is in confusion. It's in chaos. It's in disorder. It's in disarray. And Titus is just trying to make sense of it all. And, and what Paul says is, is this is the, the future of the church depends on, he says, the sake of the elect depends on what happens next, that our next move determines the future of this church. So what is Paul going to do? What is Paul going to say? How is Paul going to write to Titus? What is he going to do? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't give them good advice. He doesn't say, oh, well, if you do this, then everything's going to work out. Hey, well, have you considered this? That's what we do in other people. When we see a problem, we try to give good advice. That's not what Paul does. Now, good advice is going to come, but Paul starts off with this, good news. He gives good news before he gives good advice. Because good advice doesn't change lives. You know what changes lives? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that can change lives. He doesn't start with good advice. He doesn't try to do behavioral modification. He starts with belief, and then he moves into behavior. He starts with the glory of God and applies it to the good of your life. 
Good news is the only thing that will change lives. So here's, here's four pieces of good news from the book of Titus. I told you I was going to preach. So here we go. I'm going to raise up my sleeves and we're going to get to work. All right, now that you know who Titus is, who Paul is, let's see how this applies to our life. All right, so the first piece of good news that Paul gives Titus is this. God has a plan. Does that sound good? God has a plan. This is what he says. He says, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word. That sounds, that sounds like a plan. Through the preaching of the word, which I have been entrusted by the commands of our Savior. God has a plan. Have you heard this? Yes. Like, what is God's plan for my life? Have you ever wondered that? Does God have a plan for me? I'm just trying to figure out God's plan. This is a typical question asked, um, asked in Christianity. It's typically asked by you know, young believers, people in transition and life stages, trying to figure out what it is that God would have them to do. What is God's plan for my life? Now, does God have a plan? Yes, absolutely. God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for my life. God has a plan for their life. God has a plan for the life of the people in the Church of Crete. God has a plan for all of our lives. And it's not a mystery. It's, it's not, it, it's not um, confusing. God's not hiding his plan. It's on display. Do you know what God's plan is for your life? It's Jesus. Jesus is God's plan for your life. It's always been God. God has always been about God himself. For the greatest glory is God himself. Now listen to me. Listen to me. I'm going to say something to you, and it's going to sound crazy. Maybe nobody's ever told you this before. Maybe you, 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 I hope you can comprehend what I'm fixing to say. Because if you understand this, then everything we talk about through the rest of the series is going to make total sense. But if you miss this, then you're going to miss everything. Okay, so I need you to listen. Life is not about you. Life is not about you. This, all of this, everything you see, it's not about you. It's not because of you. It doesn't depend on you. You don't make it work. Right? It's not about you. I know this is some great esoteric truth that not many people can comprehend, but I want you to understand it's not about you. I know you're great. I know you're awesome. I love you, but you're not that awesome. Like, you're average at best, but it's not about you. And the sooner we understand this is the sooner that we'll understand what God's plan for our life is, that God's plan is solely, only about the glory of God. See, God has always been about his glory. That's what he says. He says, before time began, ancient of days, that God had a plan. And so God stepped back when he created this, the universe, the stars and the galaxies and, and, and the supernovas that collide and create new worlds. When God made that, he stepped back and he said, glorious. That displays my glory before all the world. Glorious. When God created the earth, when he dug the rivers, when he formed the mountains, when he painted gold on the horizons as the sun sets, he stepped back and he said, glorious. That perfectly displays my glory. When God made man from dust, when God made you in your mother's womb, God stepped back and he said, glorious. Glorious. Because you were created to be a mirror for the glory of God in this world. 
The glory of God is what God has always been about. So God's plan has always been Jesus. The glory of God manifested on display in the world we live in. Now, some of you are going to have a hard time understanding this. Some of you are going to, are going to, are going to balk, and you're thinking, like, doesn't that seem selfish? That God would be about God. Doesn't that seem selfish? That God would only be concerned about his glory? No, that's not selfish. Because God is the greatest good. There is nothing for God to divert to with his worship. God is glorious and perfect in all of his ways. There is nothing higher than God. So the greatest good God can do is to glorify in himself. So therefore, the greatest good you can do in your life is to glorify God. There's nothing higher than that. So your plan, you're created for the glory of God. And some people would say, again, they'll say this. They'll say, well, if God is so good and this God is so glorious, then why is there sin in this world? Why would God even create us if he knew that we were going to sin? Why would he do that? That doesn't sound good to me. Okay? Let me try to help you understand this. Why do mothers long to have children? Why do men desire to be fathers? I was thinking about this as Ashley told me that she was pregnant. And she said, you're going to be a dad. And it was the greatest, most joyful moment in my life. I'm going to be a dad. That's going to be awesome. And then a couple months later into the pregnancy, I remember sitting at the table one night and fear and panic just washed over me. And I remember I sat there and I cried. I just started to cry because here's what I know is that one day this little girl that I love and I haven't even met yet is going to lie to me. She's going to break my heart. She's going to tell mom no. She's going to become a teenager. She's going to rebel. And she's going to sin. And it broke my heart. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that worth it to bring love into this world? Absolutely. Absolutely. For the capacity to love unconditionally, the ability to be a family is worth the heartbreak of sin. The forgiveness of a father is worth the heartbreak of sin, that the glory of God would be applied to your life and displayed in the world around you. It is worth it to experience the suffering of this world so that way you might know the sovereignty and the supremacy of God in your life. God has a plan, and this is it. This is God's plan for your life, to glorify in God himself. It's good news. It's good news. It's not about you. So it doesn't depend on you. You don't hold it together. That God holds you together. That's good news. The second part of good news that Paul gives to this young preacher is this, is that God has a promise. This is what he says. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised. There's our word. God, who never lies, promised. Okay, how many of you guys like science? Anybody like science? Good, good. See, people say Christians don't believe in science. No, like science is a thing. Like it exists, okay? Like we believe in science. And I looked this up. Um, I got a scientific fact. It's proven, okay? Now don't go try to do your own experiment. 
Um, just trust me on this, okay? 100% of everyone who is alive today, who is walking this earth, 100% scientifically fact, will die. It's true. The moment we are born, we begin the lifelong process of dying. We are eternal beings. The moment we are born, we begin the process of dying. But as everyone who lives will die, conversely, not everyone who lives is actually alive. Because while we are born, we are born physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. You are dead in your sins. You are dead in your trespasses. You are dead in your faith. Which is why Jesus had to come and live the life you never could. Jesus had to come live this life that you never could to die the death that you deserve to overcome sin, death, and the grave, overcoming your sin, your shame, your separation for his glory, and then he gives you the gift of eternal life. See, listen, the moment you are born, you begin dying, but the moment that you are born again, that's when life truly begins. This life is short. One day, you will die. Your life is but a vapor. Your life is but a mist. You are just a sand in the grains of time. If you blink, it's over. You get 80 years if you are lucky. If you take your vitamins and you don't get hit by a bus, you might get 80 years. This life is short. This life is meaningless. But that does not mean that this life has to be without meaning. If you live for something greater than yourself, you will leave a legacy for the glory of God and the good of others. This life is not about you. This life is short, and listen to me, listen to me. For some people, this life is the closest to heaven you will ever get. Enjoy it. Laugh, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you will die. But for others, this life in pain and suffering and heartbreak and disappointment and despair is the closest to hell you will ever be. So rejoice in that. See, God, God gives us a promise, and that promise is the gift of eternal life. And the moment you give your life to Jesus, life begins. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to experience the glory of eternal life. Life starts now. Do you need the promise of God in your life? Do you need truth? Paul says truth. Do you need truth? Is there lies in this world, yes or no? Yes. Have you heard one in the last five years? Yes, lies exist. Do you need to know the difference between right and wrong, what's true, what's false, and how to live? Yes, the promise of God of truth is available for you now. Do you need, do you need hope? Paul says here, he says, hope. Do you need a place to hang your hat on a better tomorrow? Hope is available for you in the work of Jesus. Do you need godliness? Do you need character? Do you need integrity? Do you need a spine for your soul? Yes. It's available for you now. Do you need the promises of God of eternal life? Yes. It's available for you in the glory of God. This is what we were created for, to experience the glory of God and the promise and hope of eternal life in him. Listen to me. Don't waste your life. Don't do it. It's a bad trade. Don't settle for temporary moments of satisfaction when eternal joy has been promised to you in the person of Jesus. Don't make that trade. It's a bad deal. 
Don't settle for less than what God has promised for you and his son. It's a bad trade. I'm telling you, there's nothing that breaks my heart as a pastor more than to see someone taste of the glory of the Lord and then spit it out and do whatever they want. Nothing breaks my heart more. I will never understand it. But I see it. And I see it in our lives. I see it in our hearts. I see it in our city. And I see it in our church. It's a bad deal. Don't do it. Keep your eyes focused on the glory of the Lord, on display in your life. And I'll tell you this, life may be painful, life may be hard, life may be suffering, but the glory of God is worth the joy that he gives you. When you give him glory, he promises to give you joy. It's a great exchange. The promises of God is available for us in the person and work of Jesus. Paul keeps going. The good news keeps going. He says that God has a purpose. He says here, manifested in his word through the preaching. I love that. Through the preaching, which I have been entrusted to by the command of God, our Savior. So God has a promise. How does God plan to, to show his glory to the world around? Namely, the person work of Jesus. How does God plan? How does God have a purpose to bring that about? Here he says two things. He says, through the preaching of the word and through the command. Okay, so preaching and then obeying the commands. What are the commands of God? To make disciples, to baptize new believers, to take communion, and then to um, love God, love others, right? So what do we call a place that preaches the gospel and obeys the command of God? We call that a church. That's a church. That's what a church does. A church is the visible display of the glory of God in the city we live in. Okay, I was asked just the other day, um, I, I was interviewed by the Belmont Enterprise, and they asked me, they said, what makes redemption different? I said, I, I don't really know. I don't know. They're like, well, what does this typical, you know, church service look like for you? I was, I was like, well, okay, here's what we do. Um, we sing songs, we preach sermons straight through books of the Bible, we pray together, we take communion, and we meet in homes to study our Bibles. And she said, wow, that sounds like a church. <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, that's because we are a church. That's who we are. We are a church. It's not a place, but rather it's his people. God's purpose for your life is to be connected to a people, to do life with, to live life with, and to display the glory of God in the world around you. That we are God's people called out for God's purpose to display the glory of God through the good of our lives. Now, how does God plan to bring about this? Well, he does it through the church. And the local church, there's two different types of churches. There's the church universal with the big C, and then there's the local church, so that's the little C. The church universal includes all of us, not just us in this room, but everyone who has ever professed faith in the name of Jesus. You're a part of the universal church. So you say, oh, I don't really like church. Too bad. You're a part of one, okay? You are a part of the church. You're the part of the church universal. So this includes um, us here at Redemption, the American church, the church in China, the Syrian church. This includes the churches from 1400s and the Protestant Reformation. This includes all denominations. This includes the Church of Crete. This includes even the ancient Jews who held on to the promise of the coming Messiah. This is everyone. All of God's children are part of the church universal. This includes the 2.2 billion people who are on the planet right now who profess faith in the name of Jesus. So we're all a part of this great purpose of God to bring his glory to the world in which we live in. That is our purpose. 
And we do that through the preaching of the word. We do that through obeying God's commands. Now, gathering together as the universal church is pretty impossible. Okay, like, like that, that purpose is way too big for you. Um, it's Jesus' church, so it's all about him anyway. So what he does is God has designed something special in which the universal church gathers in smaller pockets of people known as the local church. And this is who Paul is writing to, Titus, a pastor of a local church. And so as a local church, we're to gather around other believers to pray, to preach, to, to worship, to serve. And it's in the local church we find the purpose of our life which is to glory in God for the good of others. Good news is, Jesus doesn't save you and leave you. He gives you a community to walk alongside you. That God would be our father and he would make us a family. That's good news. That is the purpose for our lives. So this includes everyone who preaches the gospel, who, who, who calls sinners to repentance, and worships the Lord in spirit and truth. That is the local church. So Surgeon Community is the church. Cathedral is the church. Calvary is the church. Praise Church is a church, and we're all on the same team, and we're all brothers and sisters. We're all working for the same goal, to glorify God and to change this city. That is the purpose of God for your life. And all of this leads up to Paul's fourth and final point. He says this, that God has a plan, God has a promise, God has a purpose, and God's going to make sure all of this happens, because it depends on him. It's all about him. It's all because of Jesus. But... Paul's fourth point says this. We have a part to play. This is what he says. He says, manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted. I have been entrusted. Hold on to that word. By the command of God our Savior. We have a part to play. All this can seem overwhelming. All this can seem like, how am I even going to Settle with this. How am I even going to come to terms with this? And the good news is, is that God gives you the Holy Spirit to work in your life, and you have a part to play in the story of God. You have a part to play. That God loves you enough to invite you in to his good work that he's doing across the world. Now, God could do it without you. I mean, God could do it. He's God. But he chose you. He entrusted it to you that you might be a part, that you might be a part of what he does. See, this is why we can't compartmentalize our faith from our works, because God has entrusted you with this message of the gospel of the glory of the Lord. And he is going to make sure that it works for your good joy as well. Listen, I'll give you an illustration. Um, And I've shared with you this before, and I love it. Um, And I think it's a great illustration of what it means for us to, to work with with God. All right, so I was raised in a blue-collar family, hard-working, blue-collar family, um, raised by my grandparents. Now, I love my papa, um, and, and, and he is one of the hardest-working men that I've ever met in my life, right? I think he's only taken like three days off in the last 40 years or something like that. He's the kind of guy who, who, who could like cut his thumb off, spit on it, take a bath, and watch the news by six. Like, that's that's my papa. He works hard. He works hard. He loves his family well. He prays well. He loves Jesus, and he serves here at this church. I love my papa. And as a, as a kid, he was my hero. And, and so one of, the, one of the greatest joys I had is during the summer, he would bring me to work with him. And now he worked at a pipe fabrication shop. 
So he's the superintendent of a local shop here in town. And when I was a little kid, he would say, hey, do you want to come to work with me? It's like five in the morning. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. So I put on my, you know, my, my work jeans. I put on like a dirty play shirt. And I would go out to work with my, my grandfather. And he would, he would put me out at the shop. And I would go around. And I'd, I'd sweep up trash or I'd pick up you know, screws. And I, really, I, I was just kind of there. Um, and I was just walking around. But I was thinking like, yeah, look at me. I'm working. Right? In reality, I was probably just getting in the way. Um, but he loved me being there. And sure, he could have gotten someone else to do that job. I mean, he could have hired someone. He could have brought somebody else in. But no, he wanted me there with him. So he could step back and say, look, that's, that's my grandson. That's, that's my boy. And that I could say, I'm like my grandfather. And there was a joy in that, that I got to work with him and that he got to lead me in my work as well. And so the people in the shop, you know, they were like, that's Chuck's boy. In the same way, people in this city should say, that's God's child. That you get to go to work with your father. In the same way that my grandfather looked at me and was proud, is the same way that your heavenly father looks at you and is proud. Think about that. We got work to do. We get to go to work with God. See, this is why we can't compartmentalize our faith from our works. Because it's who we are. It's what we were created for. So what is our purpose? This. This is your purpose. To see the glory of God on display in the world. To see the the gold on the horizons. To see the stars. To see the mountains. To see the sunsets. And to see your neighbors meet Jesus. The glory of God on display in your life. There's nothing better. How could we settle for something less? How is it possible for us to settle for cheap joys and temporary thrills and possessions and power and people's opinions? How could we settle for something less than the glory of God? See, this is why it's not a part of our lives. It is our life. My heart breaks. My heart breaks for the American church. My heart breaks because we've settled for something less. We've settled for something less than Jesus. Jesus alone, the only source of joy for our lives. We've settled. My heart breaks for people in this city who who, who were raised in church. 95% of you were raised with some sort of faith background and have walked away and want nothing to do with it, not solely because of the hardness of your hearts, but also because of the duplicitous lives of people who claim to be Christians. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that we would be a church that would settle for something less than the glory of God in our city. Lord, have mercy on us for trying to be more culturally relevant than biblically faithful. Lord, have mercy on us for making it anything but to see this, to see Jesus Christ lifted up. Lord, have mercy on us. This word, this book, is a word for all of us. It's a a timely word, but it's a timeless word. Lord, make us like Titus. Make us men and women who are bold enough, who have the courage to stand up and to proclaim the glory of God 
with our daily lives. That we would no longer separate our faith from our works, our beliefs from our behaviors, or the glory of God from what we deem as good. But rather, we would learn to apply the gospel to every piece of our existence. This is the church Jesus builds on the confession of faith and the living display of the glory of God. Now, I know all of this as we close. I know all of this can seem overwhelming. Again, it could seem as if God's saying, well, if you do this, then I'll do this. That if you work for me, then I'll work for you. Like it's quid pro quo. Like God's trying to trade you. And that's our natural proclivities is to understand that, that if I do this, then God will love me. That's not true. Titus reminds us we are saved by grace through faith alone. And that's why Paul's last words here is grace and peace. As he closes out the section, he says, grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace and peace. Listen, listen. Our God is a God of grace. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it, but he gives it to you freely. That Jesus lived the life you never could. All your sin, all your shame, all your separation, he bore it on the cross, and he gives you the promise of eternal life. This is grace, and it's available for you completely free. That one man gave his life for all who live. This is grace. Now, now listen. You will fail. You will. You're going to forget. And it's going to be fine today. And then you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you're going to forget. And the kids are going to start screaming and your boss is going to be calling. And by Wednesday night, it seems like all hope is lost. You will forget, which is why we must be reminded of the gospel. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Grace is available for you even when you fail. He's still saying, Come. Come to me. And what we do, and what we do when we work from that position of grace, it's not about you, it doesn't depend on you. When you work from that position of grace, here's what it does. Grace always produces peace. Do you need peace in your life? Do you need peace? Do you need peace in your work? Do you need peace in your family? Do you need peace in your marriage? Do you need peace with your kids? Do you need peace in anxiety, peace in suffering, peace in depression? Do you need peace? Glorify God. I promise you. The more you glory in him, the more peace you will get. He will bring you through it, not around the storms, but he brings you through that storm. And the sustainer and author of your faith. As we close, again, there's one quote I want to leave you with. And I want you to talk about this in your missional communities, maybe with your family as you're wrapping up. And it's this. There's a guy named Brennan Manning. He's the author of a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. He's a hippie who got saved in the... 60s and 70s, and went on to be a part of what's called the Jesus Movement. And this was his observation as a new Christian coming into the church. And he says, um, the single greatest reason for unbelief in the world is not, is not unbelief itself, but it's people who profess Jesus with their lips and deny him with their life. That's what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. Let us not be that church. Amen? Amen. 
Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at The Gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are always welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.